Amen. Thank you, Darla. Praise Jesus. Just the glory that he receives in worship and in music and song and praise. <laughs> I can praise his name all day long. Um, if you would like, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read the passage again from last week. We didn't finish it. So um, I'll just read it again. We'll finish up this passage. Fortunately, we're on a marathon, not a sprint through the books. So we will finish that up and, and touch on a couple more points. And at 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, and we'll be there most of our time. Paul writes to Timothy, in, prompting, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following. Remember last week we were talking about nourishment and sound doctrine and, and, and during your week being able to fit in opportunities to hear the Word of God preached in, in occasions to sing, uh, sing praise to the Lord during your week. Um, then he says in verse 7, "...but have nothing to do with worldly fables only fit for old women." On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. And that's where we are today. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Let us pray. Lord, your word is, is pure, Lord. It's holy. It is trustworthy. It never fails, Lord. Never returns void. And today, Lord, we pray that you teach us, that your spirit teaches us, Lord, as it indwells us to know you, Lord, to love you and to worship you, Lord, through your word. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Well, as we departed uh, last Sunday, we were in verses 6 and 7 for most of our time, discussing spiritual nourishment, that which we take in, the effects that it will have on us. And to become a good servant in verse 6, we see that you must first be nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. We need meat in our spiritual diet. And the Apostle Paul you know, told the Corinthians that they had remained carnal. They were carnal because they never progressed on to getting any proper nourishment. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes concerning their, their level of doctrinal understanding, which, which really was minuscule in, in Corinth. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. They were carnal. As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. And indeed, even now you are still not able. Still not able. And these Greek Corinthians, they remain spiritual midgets because they didn't partake in any solid food. The authorized version calls this meat. They didn't have any meat in their diet. They didn't consume any protein. So they weren't growing any spiritual muscle. And, and of course, we'd anticipate that this is you know, probably very isolated in early Christendom. Isolated in early church, rare. No. 
Unfortunately, it wasn't rare. In, in fact, the writer to the Hebrews, those being Jewish Christians, that writer encountered a similar problem among Jewish Christians, writing in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 this, Concerning Christ, we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not meat. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant, the writer of Hebrews says. Again, an infant. But meat is for the mature, he writes, who because of practice, they practice it, they have their senses trained so that they can discern good from evil. Notice Hebrews says that to become mature, Christians must be nourished with meat so we can be trained to discern good from evil. And and the reason that so many uh, professing Christians can't discern good from evil, right from wrong, is because they just remain bottle-fed. They never progress on to meat. Hebrews says spiritually they're just infants. They can't discern. And, and, and as we said, this, this isn't an isolated problem that we see in Scripture. In fact, out of the seven churches in, in Revelation that are addressed, how many of them do you remember are actually commended? One, two, yet in Smyrna there. Smyrna was corrected and commended. Really, is uh, Philadelphia was the only church that was firmly commended. And do you remember why they were commended? Why they were able to hold firm? It says because they held fast to the Word of God. They were commended because they held fast to the Word of God. Um, so doctrinal meat, it's key to becoming a strong church or a strong individual, both, uh, that Christ, uh, Christ then will ultimately commend those churches, those individuals that, that like Philadelphia, uh, anticipate a reward at His return, at Christ's return. We also learned last Sunday, you know, that it's, not, it's very important to not ingest spoiled food. We, we don't want to eat that. It said in verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. You know, the ESV translated this, irreverent, silly myths. Uh, there are fables, strange doctrines, and tales we talked about last week. They'll, they'll make you spiritually ill. You're ingesting things that aren't good for you. They mix into your doctrine. You, you lose your sense of discernment. Paul says to avoid such things. But in order to discern the difference from good and evil, Hebrews just told us that we need to have doctrinal meat. Spiritual discernment is is accompanying biblical nourishment. And this is one reason why you see Christians, professing Christians, you know, you can point directly at evil in the culture. On television, in the media, you you can point right at evil. It's like they, some people have a blank stare. They've never gathered any discernment about what God's Word would say about that topic, what God proclaims in His Word about the topic, so they, they, just, they don't have any biblical discernment because they haven't digested any meat. They haven't digested any meat. So to grow in wisdom, Christian maturity, spiritual strength, we need that protein shake, that mixture of God's Word, discernment, uh, of doctrine, and, and just like a professional athlete would probably eat a lot of uh, eggs and nuts and, and a big thick steak probably uh, to grow to be strong, an NFL player, 
you, you throw in there some, some discipline, uh, a regular exercise, and if we would do that with God's Word, with our prayer, and the other things we'll discuss today, you know, you and I would become very spiritually strong like Arnold. Arnold. And, and then when the false doctrine comes knocking on the door, will be its terminator. Alright? But you have to grow. You have to big, have big muscles. And the key to all of this, it's adding disciplined exercise. Because, you know, without, without disciplined exercise, there really isn't a whole lot of profit in a high-protein diet. Probably lose some weight. Uh, this week, I finally got back to the gym that I was talking about. I became convicted last weekend talking to you. And I made sure I had eaten some protein beforehand. A lot of times afterwards, I'll grab a, a protein shake like you get at Sam's. Add a little more protein. But what if I just ate a whole bunch of protein and never disciplined myself to exercise? Would I actually gain any muscle? No, no. I'd just end up probably having digestive problems, right? That, that's what would happen. And this is what happens to us if, if we study the Bible and, and digest a lot of meat, yet we never discipline ourselves to exercise it. Uh, we, never, we never progress uh, towards what it teaches in, uh, in godliness. And, and we become spiritually clogged up. Nothing flows out. We're not rivers of living water like the woman at the well in John 4. Uh, we might learn a lot. We can attend innumerable or numerous or unending Bible studies every week. We could probably pass a Bible literacy exam with flying colors. But if we are not progressing on to disciplining ourselves to use it, there's not going to be any profit. Not going to be any profit. And and this is the reason uh, it's so important. It's because when we look at Romans chapter 10, God has ordained that people will be saved. People will be saved by our exercising what we've learned. How beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. Additionally, it's similar to how an athlete who takes in a whole lot of protein, uh, he'll never, he or she will never achieve victory without disciplined exercise. A Christian who in- ingests a whole lot of Bible knowledge and discernment won't realize a whole lot of profit unless there's disciplined exercise Uh, added to what they've learned. So in verse 7, Paul says that we must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We see an obvious contrast present in verse 7, rather than meaning instead of wasting our time discussing old wives' tales and fables and and tales, we do what? It says we need to work out. We need to work out. That's, that's right. The Greek term here for discipline, possibly your translation says exercise, in verse 7 is gymnazo. It, it is the word from which we reser- receive gymnasium. And, and Paul's presenting through this word picture here, an athlete preparing himself for competition. Remind you of our scripture reading we just had? He was preparing himself. He wanted to win the race. And the nourishment that we've ingested, it has to be worked out, it has to be exercised, it has to be disciplined in order to win the race, in order to achieve godliness. Questions why? Why do we want to put any of that into exercise? Why do we want to train? Why do we want to work with what we've learned? 
It's because that working out what we learned with fear and trembling, what, what we've digested and what we've taken in and working that out is going to yield a profit, not only today, but on into eternity. There's going to be profit in it. And, and there's not going to be any profit realizing just acquiring knowledge alone. No, no profit in that. I, I can think of no better uh, illustration for the need to work out knowledge than, than how most of us have at one point in our lives learned evangelism. Either in a seminar or in a church, in some method, uh, typically an evangelism seminar is offered to individuals or a congregation where the people intellectually learn evangelism techniques. Have you ever done that? You'll learn about the four spiritual laws, evangelism explosion you'll talk about. You'll, you'll be shown how to share tracts with people in the gospel. And, and they'll all be reinforced with biblical examples. And, and all, much of the time, there's a motivating speaker who, who heralds the potential gain that, that a church can, can see from disciplined evangelism. What a church can experience in growth and bringing in talent and seeing joy of people being saved through a healthy evangelism program. And these are, of course, they're all true. They're all true. The problem comes is only when a very small number of evangelism programs out there, uh, these seminars, actually take the participants out and do it. All they do is learn about it. All they do is talk about it. Uh, most of them, not all of them. But unfortunately, when all that people do is intellectually learn about how evangelism is supposed to work, yeah, everybody leaves smarter. Nobody ever gets saved. Because you have to take that and you have to apply what you've learned in knowledge and you have to exercise it out. You have to be disciplined to add that into your schedule. And, and there's, there's no profit realized, not today, by members being added to the church. So you, you have new people to rejoice in the Lord. No growth in Christ's church in general. No souls added to eternity. No excitement. Uh, the tragedy is this. You and I, we're not going to profit by just repeatedly discussing what we've learned about evangelism. Or anything else. We can't just discuss it. We can't just learn it. We can't just learn the notes of a song and never play the instrument. We need to realize that. There has to be some application to what we do in all manners of service. And for that profit to, to come today, that end the life to come, we have to exercise. And you know, the honest truth is, for, for me as well, the truth is, we'd rather not. Spiritually, honestly, you know, we'd rather eat carbs than sit on the couch. Who wouldn't? Eat as much as you want, never go out and exercise. And, and because of this, we have to be provoked to action. We, we have to be spurred. We have to be prodded. We need to be poked by Scripture and through mutual encouragement. Uh, because, you know, the Spirit may be willing, but boy, that flesh, that flesh, boy, that takes over, folks. And, and spiritually, our flesh, let's admit it, it really prefer to stay on that couch than ever go exercise anything that we've learned. We know that. For that reason, Hebrews 10.23 says this, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. King James says, Provoke unto love and good works. Provoke. 
you know, provoke or stimulate here, it's a very pointed word in the Greek, paroxymos. It means to make someone irritated, to stir people to anger, even to the point that they become incensed. Very pointed word, provoke one another. So one of our purposes in coming together as a body and as a church is to provoke one another unto good deeds, unto good work, to be disciplined, uh, discipline ourselves to godliness. And there's a very good reason for it. Verse 8 shows it in 1 Timothy 4. It says, you know, bodily discipline, it's only for a little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life that is to come. You see, bodily exercise, that, that is of a little profit. Very little. Because the results are so temporal. So temporal. Properly nourishing yourself, um, combined with going to the gym, it might get you buff. Probably will if you do it right. At least for a while. At least for a while. But uh, I've experienced it myself. Everyone knows that you just lay off for a couple weeks from the running or the cardio or the training and the weightlifting, and almost immediately you begin losing what you've invested all your time in. Is that not true? You almost immediately begin losing it. And, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that you should not eat right. You should. You should also exercise. You should work out. You should enjoy that. You should stay out of the sun so you don't get too much sun. There are a lot of things that we can do that are wise. A balanced diet, balanced exercise. But they are temporal. Temporal. The results are going to be temporal in comparison to what we're going to see with godliness. Disciplining oneself to godliness, now that holds, holds promise and it is profitable for now and the life that is to come in eternity. All that we were singing about with, with Pastor Weiler leading here a few moments ago. And, and we're going to see profit. We're going to see profit. And in reference to godliness here in verse 8, you know, Paul uses a very general term. Godliness, it's very broad. Could refer really to anything, including worship, prayer, uh, service, proclamation. Godliness can be anything here. Really anything that you can do that will ultimately result in Jesus Christ receiving glory glory for it. Colossians 3.17 uh, says, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So everything can be profitable. Your work that you do, where you go, the attitude you have, talking about Christ, using the opportunities that God gives you, sowing seeds, scattering, watering, God will provide the increase. Everything we can do that is geared towards godliness can become profitable. And, and our model for living a disciplined life of godliness, that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived a disciplined life of godliness. Nobody was more disciplined than he. And, and, and even Christ, he had to fight a lot, a lot of the temptations that we have. He had to discipline himself to get up early. He had a human body like us. And, and Hebrews 4 reminds us, we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things that we are, yet without sin. He is the perfect example of obedience. Christ understood the pressures of his culture. He knew the lures of the world. He was tempted in every type of way that we are. Yet he never yielded to sin. He was disciplined. 
So we can look to Christ as our model of discipline. And when we do that, what do we see? What do we see in Christ? One of the first things that we see, Christ was disciplined for prayer. In Mark 1, he's rising early while still dark so he could slip away to a secluded place. And Jesus prayed. You say, I'm not an early riser. You know what, I just, I've struggled with that. I can't get up in the morning. I work late. I work odd shifts. We talked about those last week. They prevent us sometimes from getting in cycle with, with the community, even our church. Um, you say, I, you know, I'm not an early morning person. I get off at one in the morning. Well, in Matthew 14, after feeding a multitude of 5,000 people, this is sometime in the afternoon before the evening, we see that Jesus took an opportunity he had late in the afternoon to retreat over to a mountaintop by himself to pray alone. He sees that opportunity. And, and you know, sometimes we can be so concerned about the time that we pray, the method by which we pray, the posture that we're praying. We become so concerned about doing everything right that we forget to do it at all or neglect to do it. Luke 5.16 says this, Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray without a timeline added to it. What is the right time of day to pray? Often. Often. Jesus considered it profitable. It was profitable. So for us to be disciplined to godliness, Jesus would seem, Jesus would seem to indicate that you and I should remember to pray. First and foremost, we need to pray. And then you might ask, well, you know, what should we pray about? Good question. This week we studied in Philippians 4.6, prayer in the men's discipleship group on Wednesday evening. Pastor Weiler led a study there. And he told us, let all of our requests be made known before God. And so God is willing to listen to any reasonable, godly, um, sincere requests that we have. You know, even Jesus was aware of what his fate was going to be at Calvary. He knew what the fate was. And his soul was deeply grieved, as we see in Matthew. Even to the point of death, it says. He fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but thine. Thy will. Not my will. And we see in this prayer Christ's divinity and his humanity woven together in perfect harmony as the God-man. And Jesus expresses his human anguish about what he knew he was about to suffer. And he makes that request known to his Father. Yet he resolves himself to do God's will. To endure the full weight, the full measure of our sins in his body on the cross. A weight no mere human could bear. Nobody could bear what Christ had to bear. And he prayed. And Jesus demonstrates that God will gladly hear all of our sincere requests. Jesus also, in this same passage, is our perfect pattern for disciplined obedience to God. Not my will, but thy will. Putting himself in subjection to the Father, submission to the Father, so ultimately, God's will, that must be our cry. That is our cry. We seek first His kingdom and His righteousness before everything else is added to us, right? His kingdom and His righteousness. But in order to obey God, we have to be able to discern what His will is. 
That's the issue at hand. You know, being divine, Jesus knew inherently what God's will was. He knew he was going to the cross. He was expressing his anguish to the Father. But for us, we have to learn God's will. We have to have that meat. We have to to learn it to discern it. And yes, God will listen to all of our requests. Philippians 4, 6 has said, that doesn't mean God's going to grant all of our requests. And Philippians 4, it simply indicates in that passage, if you look at it, as you ask your requests, you make them made known to God, that you're going to receive God's peace, knowing that He's heard you. That's the context of Philippians 4, 6. And sometimes we hear that 1 John 5, 15, which we studied last year, uh, going through 1 John, we see that that's misused to imply that somehow we've got one up on God. That somehow He's going to do what we say He does. That, that verse says, if we, know him, if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. You hear that quoted a lot on television. We can't dismiss the context, though. Here's what you won't often hear. The verse before that, which a lot of people ignore. Verse 14 sheds a little more light on things, saying, This is the confidence which we have before God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. And then it continues, And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask according to His will, we know that we have those requests. It's got to be according to God's will. So we have to know uh, in our disciplined prayer of modeling, uh, modeled by Christ and reinforced by Scripture, we're told that we need to pray according to God's will, not according to our own will. And we don't discern God's will for our lives by a fleeting emotion, not by a gut instinct or, or by the flavor of the month. That's not how we discern God's will. And we don't wait for some kind of sign. We're never told to wait for that. It's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks a sign. Psalm 119.9 says, A young man will keep his life pure. How? By keeping it according to God's word. Read Psalm 119 once, beginning to end in the word. Compliments that we just heard in Psalm 19 this morning. God's word is his will for our lives. It's revealed. Our, his will for us is revealed in the word. So we have to discipline ourselves to learn and absorb his word. Absorb God's word. This comes first and foremost by exposure to God's Word. Especially as a congregation. Exposure to the Word. And in our passage next week, which will be verses 11 to 16, we're reminded to give special attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching of God's Word in the corporate sense. For this reason, Hebrews 10.25 tells us, we must not forsake the assembly of the saints as is the habit of some, but we are to encourage one another. It's the very previous verse to this that just told us to provoke one another unto good works. Provoke one another unto good works, and do not forsake the assembly of the saints, which we talked about and how that can be affected in our culture. Um, Foremost, in order to discern God's will, in order to have an effective prayer life, we have to discipline ourselves to attend church. We have to be in church on Sunday. That isn't an opinion. That's Scripture. Scripture tells us that. And thus, committed church attendance, as we are able, 
knowing that work schedules, other things interfere, but committed church attendance is essential to know God's will. Yeah, you have to hear the Word. And it's by drawing together as a body and proclaiming, presenting God's Word publicly that we remain in spiritual and doctrinal harmony with one another. It's how we grow tight. Jesus prayed in His high priestly prayer that's recorded in John chapter 17, this. He prays for sanctification and oneness. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your Word is truth. Sanctify, sanctification, and truth. And he prays just a couple verses later. Jesus says to his Father, I do not ask on behalf of these. He's pointing to his disciples that were there with him. He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who will believe through their word. That's the apostolic testimony that was going to go out from them. So Jesus says, I don't pray only for these alone, but for those who will come to believe through their word, i.e. all the scriptures that are written. And he says, my prayer, Jesus says, that they may all be one. Sanctification, unity, through the Word of God. Through the Word of God. Understanding of the Word of God. And we become one together by being sanctified together in the truth. In the truth. And as a local body, we sing together. We pray together. The scriptures are read together. We'll see next week. Sound doctrine is declared for everyone to hear together. And assembling together is where we find unity. It's where we remain on the same page with one another. Discerning God's will. And learning God's will with our prayers. This is both corporately, individually in our prayers. We'll be increasingly in harmony with God's will by knowing His Word. And for that reason, our prayers will be in more harmony with God's will and they will be answered more affirmatively can't pray against God's will and think that it's going to happen. We pray for laborers to be sent in the harvest. God is likely to answer that. We pray for souls to be saved. God is likely to provide some granting in that. Wherever we find in Scripture that we see it's God's will, we can pray that with confidence. I'd like to look at one more. We have to discipline ourselves not only to pray, not only to be in church, several other things, we have to discipline ourselves to serve. Discipline ourselves to serve. Could it be that this general call to discipline, to to godliness in verse 8, simply refers to practicing piety? Could it be that, you know, acting holy, participating in formal ceremony, you know, praying a certain number of times per day or per week, um, others, we, we see with the Catholics that some of them will attend Mass on a daily basis. Uh, that's formal piety. And does, does that, does merely attending church more times constitute godliness? Not according to Paul. Look with me at verse 10. This refers back to godliness in verse 8. It says, It is for this that we labor and we strive, because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And godliness is not just just attending church a certain number of times, sitting on our hands. Godliness is laborious. It it involves physical toil. That's why we discipline our bodies. And and, and we saw in our scripture reading earlier that Paul had disciplined his body to serve. 
And in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, very familiar passage, we know that for by grace we are saved through faith, that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. Yet what does verse 10 say? 10 says that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has created from beforehand so that we might walk in them. So we're created for good works. And in case you're a new visitor or you're new to Christ or you're... Uh, new to visiting a church, nobody's ever saved by good works. Nobody's ever saved by good works. We're saved by trusting in Christ's work alone as He obeyed perfectly all the ordinances of God, all the commands of God, all of the law He obeyed perfectly for us on our behalf, and then He willingly offered Himself up on the cross to die on our behalf. On the cross. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. Yet, once we realize that and we've come to faith in Christ and we've devoted our lives to Him, confessing in our mouth Jesus is Lord, believing in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we're saved for the purpose of good works. To do good things, to bring glory to Him. And, and, to, work, uh, and to work instead to say, I think I'm earning points with God uh, to earn your own personal salvation. That's rejecting what Christ has done. We don't do that. We accept what Christ has done for us. And after we're saved, we glorify Jesus through good works. Titus 2 tells us this, that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, everyone we've ever done, a lot of them, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, that is the church. And then the action. It says, these are zealous for good deeds. The good deeds take time and effort. Disciplining our body to do them takes time and effort. Time off our schedule, effort out of our bodies. And, and this just simply means that we take what we learn on Sundays, we put it into action. We put it into action. James tells us that true religion, it's visiting the orphan and the widow in their distress, caring for them. Later he says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? No. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily prayer, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, yet you don't give them what's necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith without works, it's dead, right? What we learn, uh, we must discipline ourselves into translating into good deeds and good works, or else we're fooling ourselves, folks. It has to translate into good works in some fashion. And, and as I mentioned last week, uh, you know, we here at Port St. Lucie Bible Church, we know a lot. We've got solid doctrine. We're going to continue to have solid doctrine. We're going to continue to learn more. But Christ didn't leave his church on earth just to learn stuff. He left his church here. The reason he didn't rapture us immediately when we place our faith in Christ and get up, sucked up in there, he left us here to do the good works. In the good deeds. And you know, we talk about, well, you know, we've got great learning going on. We're going to continue that. We talk about, maybe we should add three or four more Bible studies. Perhaps it would be more wise to practice what we're already learning. Practice what we already know. Are we praying? Are we going and telling? Are we serving? Because verse 10 says, we've put our hope in the living God who's the Savior of all men, especially believers. And this, this doesn't mean that we become universalists. 
universalism, that's a false doctrine that teaches in the end, eventually everybody will be saved. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. No way, shape, or form. That's not what this passage says. It's not what it's teaching. Universalism, universalism contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. The Bible says that, man, we're totally depraved. We're totally de- we're sick. We're, we're sick with sin. Most won't actually be saved. The way is narrow according to Christ. Few find the way. And God has to intervene. He's got to step in on our behalf. That's why we owe our souls to Him. And and God has chosen in His sovereignty to do things we don't always see in lives. He's, He's done these things. He's gone to the cross to offer salvation to unregenerate sinners through our disciplined service to Him. That's how it gets offered. That's the key. He's offering salvation to unregenerate, depraved sinners through our faithful, disciplined service to Him. He has chosen the method. I probably would have found a different method if it were me. Found one more reliable than me going out and telling others. But the Word tells me I need to go out and win others. So verse 10 means a number of things, which we could go on a whole other message about we're not going to. But primarily, we have to recognize man has no other Savior. Jesus is the Savior of all men. The only Savior. He's especially Savior of people who come to Christ, right? We go to everyone. We don't see eternity. We don't see all of God's uh, divine, sovereign workings. We talked about that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We go. We don't, we don't neglect to give anybody the gospel. We give it to everybody. There's not, a separate, there's not a separate Savior for India. There's not a different Savior for uh, China. We are told to go and tell and God will redeem who He's going to redeem. Acts 4.12 tells us, Peter was saying there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is it. That's all there is. That's all there is. And we've been given in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 to 20, we got that ministry of reconciliation. That's what we do. We're ambassadors for Christ. So we take what we've learned here uh, together, we, we pray for opportunities. We know it's God's will that some will be saved. We've got to go to everybody. And uh, we discipline ourselves to take the gospel to the lost. You know the churches that are failing today? The reason that they're failing is they've abandoned taking the gospel to the lost. A lot of churches have decided it's better to stay and learn more without disciplining themselves to do it. So we have some really smart Christians that aren't disciplined on godliness. The sound churches that are expanding today, the sound ones anyhow, there are lots of churches expanding today, not all of them sound. The sound ones expanding today are taking today, just like churches in every era have, they're taking what they're learning on Sunday morning and they're disciplining themselves to godliness and doing what the Word is saying. They're doing both sides. They're translating it into ministry out there. So folks, we need to be aware, as James says, of learning, only learning without doing. The Bible never tells us we'll be rewarded according to what we know. It's good to know. We know. We know the Savior. We know what He's done for us. But we will be rewarded according to good deeds. Good deeds. We have to know. 
We have to pray. We have to seek God's will. We'll be rewarded accordingly. It's all profitable, folks. It'll be profitable today as we see people saved and they come in and they rejoice and you see new, new Christians grow up in the faith, come to embrace their, their calling of God, what, whatever that manifests itself in. There's so many different ways to serve. We're going to see that and rejoice with them. We're going to see people saved. There's great profit today in the church growing. It's always wonderful seeing more servants of Christ joining in. You know what's even more profitable? The life to come. Seeing them in heaven. Those who we've witnessed to, those who we've served, those who we've taken the gospel to. We bless them with and as God regenerates sinners, the Holy Spirit goes into people's lives and changes them. We're going to see profit in heaven. And we don't know exactly what all the profit's going to look like. We don't know exactly what rewards are going to look like. Though we know there's, there are going to be rewards because Jesus and, and Paul and even Psalm 19 that, that Pastor Weiler read earlier talks about knowing God's Word and the rewards involved with it. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like and that's probably good because we probably get carnal about it. Thinking about what we'll have when we get there. All Jesus says, we'll be rewarded. We'll be rewarded. A big part of that reward is going to see people in heaven that we've told about Jesus Christ and rejoicing and worshiping with them in eternity, where there isn't sin anymore. There isn't striving. Uh, there are many things competing for our time, folks. You know, Jesus experienced that. Had a lot of people clamoring, wanting time, excuse me, wanting time. His response was to discipline himself to pray, to uh, resolve himself to do God's will, to serve those who are in need, and to proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. We do those, God's going to fill in the rest. You know, as we close here, familiar with laurels, resting on your laurels. We talked about working out beforehand and the, and the, the minuscule profit that comes with that. It's good, good to work out. But we're talking about protein and, and all these people that Paul was um, keeping in mind when he talked about not beating the air, not boxing against the air. And uh, they would get a wreath. And it was of laurel leaves. It was laurels. And if they were a really good champion, it, word is that they would uh, receive even food dropped off at their house, that they would be rewarded for years. Almost like uh, Joe Montana, you know, continues getting contracts forever because of what a great quarterback he was. And these athletes in these games would, would, would be able to rest on their laurels. That's where that comes from. And that crown was perishable. Ours is imperishable. What a crown to rest on. 